The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For the Secret Church 14 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC14. This is Secret Church 14, Episode 4. Then, living every day to love God with all your mind and strength. So fill your mind daily with truth from God's Word. So it's prayer and the Word. These are the backbones of daily life in Christ. Now, people come up with all kinds of reasons why we don't read, study, memorize the Bible. I don't see how the Bible really applies to my life. I've tried, but I just don't know how to study the Bible. I'm not a professional. Isn't that the pastor's job? Isn't that your job? I just don't have time. I'm not sure if the Bible's even true. To be honest, it just seems boring to me. And part of my prayer tonight is that you will see, just even the next couple minutes, the treasure that's waiting to be found in God's Word. So you will desire it and believe it, make time for it, and devour it. People ask me, how do I grow in my hunger, my desire for God's Word? And the answer is by reading God's Word. So in the illustration I've always shared uh, here in, at, at Brook Hills is when I first met my uh, now wife, Heather, and the first time I went over to her house to have dinner uh, when we were just getting to know each other, uh, as soon as I got there... Um, her family loves seafood, and so they had cooked this seafood spread, and they were like, do you, you like seafood, David? Well, I grew up in a family. We never ate seafood. My dad hated seafood, so I hated seafood. And so I'm there. I'm at the meal. All there's is seafood. I'm like, and they said, do you like seafood? I said, oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, this man looks great. Like, I don't even know what these, yeah, are, these different fish or whatever. And so, um, so I start eating it. And the problem is they, they believed this, this act I was putting on because next time I come over, they were like, hey, David's coming over and he loves seafood. Let's have some more seafood. It's like, oh, that's great. Right? I, started, I went on vacation with her family down at the beach and they're like, hey, David, what's your favorite seafood restaurant down here? Like, oh, they're all so awesome. I just, I don't even know. Inside I'm thinking, I know which ones have chicken fingers. Like that's where I go. So, anyway, the point of the story is, after a while, like, today, I love seafood, because I had to eat seafood to get a wife. So, this is, <laughs> this is how, this is how it works. The more, the more you, you acquire taste. Now, I'm not saying, hey, this word, you might not like it, but just eat it, and then it'll taste good one day. But I am saying, I'm saying, the more you taste it, the more you'll see it's good. It's good. It's better. It's better. The more you, you, you eat a Ruth's Chris hamburger, or Ruth's Chris steak and McDonald's hamburger, just doesn't cut it anymore. Like you realize where the real deal is. So why we must then daily read, study, and memorize the Bible? Because it's essential for growth and maturity. Like we need it. We need to have this book to sustain our lives spiritually. We're like, 1 Peter 2 says we're like a baby grabbing for milk. I got a one-year-old and a bottle of milk comes out at night. And it's like, it's like the kid hasn't eaten anything in his entire life. He's like, give it to me. He doesn't say that, but he does with his screaming. And so he wants it. He wants, that's what, he said, crave, crave this, crave this. As we read it, we read it because it's essential for spiritual growth and maturity, because it's vital for life and ministry. Joshua, Jesus, 2 Timothy it says all scripture, all scripture, 2 Timothy 3, that includes Leviticus, all of it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. 
And we read the Bible because it's key to joy and satisfaction. It's key to joy and satisfaction. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. Precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. More to be desired they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in them there is great reward. Oh. Then you look at all these verses from Psalm 119 to echo that reality. Huh. Let, let, let me ask you a question. What would make you happier this year? A $100,000 raise at your job or reading through the Bible over the course of a year? And don't be super spiritual. Just what, what's the first thing that came to your mind? <laughs> well, I know I'm supposed to say reading the Bible, but I'd love a raise. Look down at Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Oh, for that kind of view of the Bible in our lives. It's better. It's better. It's, it's better. Now, just because we start reading doesn't mean we'll understand. So we've got to be on guard against dangerous approaches to daily Bible reading, like the emotional approach. What feels right to me? Where we twist the Bible to fit our tastes. Or the spiritual approach. What deep meaning hidden meaning is there for me as if we're going to find something new that Christians for 2,000 years have totally missed and now thankfully you came on the scene or the, the pragmatic approach what works best for me making scripture accommodate our lives or the all too common superficial approach what does this mean to me this approach happens all the time in small group Bible studies. You know, people sitting around in a room, they'll read a verse or a chapter. Take like Genesis 22, Abraham offering his son Isaac, God providing a ram for the sacrifice. Then somebody will say, okay, what does this mean to you? And all of a sudden people start saying all kinds of different things that the passage means to them. Bob over here says, well, I think this chapter means that I need to go hiking with my son more. Just like Abraham went hiking into the mountains with Isaac. And say, oh. Okay, Bob, it's good. Anybody else? And Joe over here chimes in, says, well, I think it's clear from this passage that it's okay to sacrifice animals, which means no one should be a vegetarian. To which Joe's wife, Mary, a vegetarian, would reply, well, that's not what this passage means to me. Maybe this passage means I need to sacrifice you, Joe. So when we start a Bible study with the question, what does this passage mean to me? The conversation will quickly congeal into a pool of ignorance where a group of people find themselves sitting around sharing what they don't know about the Bible. That's not what we're after. Same thing can happen in our personal Bible study. So this is where I want to remind us that the first question we ask is not what does this passage mean to me? The first question we ask is what does the Holy Spirit mean in this passage? Quite frankly, I don't care what this passage means to you or what it means to me. I care what this passage means, period. Some people might say, well, Dave, don't you know that different verses mean different things to different people? No, that's application. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. There's no questions different verses apply to our lives in different ways. But our goal in Bible study is not to determine a personal meaning for every verse of the Bible. Our goal is to discover what the Holy Spirit meant when he gave us this verse, this chapter, this book. So here's what I hope, I believe, is a dependable approach to Bible reading based around an acrostic reap, read, examine, apply, pray. So start by reading. Read the Word. Read the Word. Read. Read the Bible prayerfully, knowing that we never study the Bible alone. So Christian, you have a built-in guide for studying the Bible, the very Spirit of God. And in the process of reading the Bible, the Holy Spirit is with you, in you, helping you to understand it and to apply it. Bible study is a supernatural activity. It's a divine encounter with the Word of God through the Spirit of God. It's awesome thought. So read the Bible prayerfully. Read the Bible humbly. We want to know God. We don't come to the Bible looking for options to consider for our life. We come to the Bible looking for commands to obey. Read the Bible carefully. We want to understand it rightly. Read the Bible joyfully. We want to experience fully. Read the Bible confidently. 
as we just mentioned, knowing that the Holy Spirit's in you. Read the Bible diligently, knowing that God, knowing God deeply doesn't happen overnight. The Bible does not yield its most choice fruit to the lazy. Read it diligently. Read the Bible consistently. Meaning, not just every day, but every part of it. Don't skip over certain parts of the Bible as if they're not important. All Scripture, God breathe. Read the Bible expectantly with a way to record your thoughts. I would encourage you to read a Bible with a pen in your hand or, or a, a journal uh, just on my computer. And so I've got my Bible and, I'm, and I've got a running journal that I'm writing things down. So if you're expecting God to speak, I would recommend writing down how, how, how he speaks to, into your life based on his word. And read the Bible personally. So many Christians never learn to study the Bible on their own. And as a result, their entire spiritual life is lived by proxy through somebody else. Christians who come every single Sunday to hear the word preached by somebody else, which is obviously not a bad thing in and of itself. But here's the deal. You never fall in love with somebody by proxy. You don't fall in love with your spouse through someone else. You don't love your spouse through someone else by proxy. You fall in love with someone directly, personally, in intimacy with that person. I'm zealous for you, not just to know God through sermons on a Sunday. You might read this book every day. I'm convinced that when you do, you will fall in love with the author of this book. And you will find true life under the authority of this book. And as you read, memorize. So take time. When a verse or a couple verses stick out to you, to commit them to memory. Key verses, key passages, key chapters. And spend concentrated time learning. Be intentional. Memorization just doesn't happen. It's intentional. I mean, oh, what is that? that frozen movie soundtrack, whatever. I mean, I just hear people singing it all the time. Like, I mean... Let it go, you know? Like just, so, I mean, because we're filling our minds with it. Like, so I hear people sometimes say to me, I just don't know how to memorize. Oh, yeah, you do. I, you know every word of those songs. So the question is, where are we spending our time memorizing? What are we filling our minds with? People say, I just can't memorize. We'll go, we'll go back to the illustration earlier. What if I told you? You say, okay, I just can't memorize. What if I told you that I'll give you between now and and the end of the weekend, $1,000 for every verse you can memorize. I don't think you'd learn to memorize. I mean, Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five, and that was easy, $1,000. So, and just move on. So, so we can, the question is, do we value it enough to do that? So spend concentrated time learning and then spend concentrated time, continual time reviewing. So write it on a note card. Mark, make a note in your smartphone. Do whatever works for you. But camp out on that verse, hide it in your heart, and then just go back over and over and over again. When you're driving down the road, when, when you're uh, yeah, just doing menial kind of things, just constantly, when you're laying down in bed at night, just go back through the word. So R, read. Then E, examine. So as you read, ask questions in the text. What is happening in this passage? What words, phrases, or ideas seem particularly important? So you're looking for details. You're thinking about every word, phrase, idea. And again, this takes time. You're not just going through this like you're going to a fast food restaurant. You have to be patient with the word. You have to ponder over it. I remember when, when uh, my wife, Heather, and I, when we were just getting to know each other, and she would write me letters, and uh, I'd just like devour that letter. I'd open it up and just read it, and I'd just overanalyze every word. Like, what does she mean by this? She said she liked me a lot. Does that mean she liked me as friends or like, like me as more than just a friend? She said she's praying for me, huh? Was well, that like she prays for me, like she prays for anybody, or like 
She's praying for a future husband. She's praying for me. Or she put a smiley face at the end. Like, does she always do that? Or am I like special because I get a smiley face? Like, this is what we're doing in Bible study. We're looking at every little detail. We're saying, okay, what, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? We're asking questions. And then we ask, what does this text teach you about the gospel? So this is where we start to step back a bit and consider how the truth in a passage is not just talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's communicating to people of all all times. So we ask, what does this text teach us about God? What does this text teach us about man? About who Christ is and why we need him? So you go through these questions. Luke 24 makes clear that all scripture ultimately points us to Christ. What does this scripture teach us about trusting and following Christ? What does this passage teach us about the hope of heaven, the horror of hell? So we ask those questions. We write down answers. So read, examine, then apply. How does this, what I've just read, apply to my life? And we ask questions like, again, and just simple question. What, what sins do I need to repent of or avoid based on this? What truths do I need to believe? What commands do I need to, to obey? What do I need to give up, stop doing, start doing, or continue doing? What principles need to change the way I think, speak, and act? And how will I implement that change? What relationships do I need to establish, strengthen, or change? And all of this, what we're asking is, by the power of God's Spirit, Christ in me, what can I do today to apply God's Word to my life? And then that naturally leads us to do what? To pray. And this way, we see that Bible reading and praying go hand in hand. This is communion with God, praying to Him, hearing from Him, and a back and forth interplay of intimacy with the God of the universe. And this word, the Bible, is crucial, critical, necessary, non-negotiable in loving God with all your mind. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, at the same time, I wanted to put in here, there are other ways we love God with our minds. So, First and foremost, we fill our, and over and above everything else, we fill our mind daily with truth from God's word. But then, underneath that, sharpen your mind daily with truth in God's world. So expand how we're thinking about loving God with our minds for a second. We love God with our minds when we read and study widely and wisely. So yes, the Bible is the only book we must, we should read, but it's also good to read other books. So many of you in this gathering tonight in different places, maybe in school, you're reading and studying all kinds of books. And this is good. If you're going to be a doctor, I hope you'll know what Leviticus says, but I hope you'll also know how to do surgery on me because you've read a couple books about it at some point. So I'm praying you're reading of the things that, that are going to be helpful there. And you're loving God with your mind when you're using your mental faculties that He's given you to grow in wisdom and in usefulness to God in the world. Because that's what I mean by studying widely and wisely. We've all been given minds. Almost all of us who are listening in this gathering tonight are able to read, which is a gift in this world. So we must take advantage of it. Read different things. There's so much in the world that passes. Now, so widely and wisely, because there's so much in the world that passes as wisdom, but it's total foolishness. And we don't love God with our minds by blindly believing everything we read or hear in the world. So heed Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So we want to filter all that we read in the world through the lens of God's Word, ultimately revealed in Christ. Similarly, listen and learn humbly and continually. So even if you're not in school, don't stop learning. Don't stop reading. Learning is God gives you opportunities. Proverbs 18, 15, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge. The ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And all of this, as you read, study, listen, and learn, avoid the pattern of this world. Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
So there's a pattern in this world that's described here in Romans 1 that begins with disordered worship. People turn their hearts away from God. That leads to disordered thinking. People believe lies that are not from God that inform the way they view the world. That leads to disordered desire. The desire things that are not of God, which leads to disordered behavior that does not bring glory to God. Summed up in Romans 1.28. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind that ought not to be done. So this is why we must fill our mind with the truth of God's word and then read, study, listen, learn, discern what is true in God's world, which means to use language from 1 Peter 2, we think as pilgrims in this world. We're sojourners and exiles, pilgrims in this world. So, so how do we do this? How do we read and study widely, listen, learn, continue in this world, and still avoid the power of the world that displeases God? A few exhortations from 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. First, continually savor the person of Christ in all things. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And listen to this phrase, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So more than anything, keep your attention, keep your affection on him, fill your mind with his word, lift your heart to his praise, and as you do, you're continually savoring Christ, and then humbly depend on the spirit of Christ in all things. So trust in the spirit who dwells in you, who knows all truth. Remember, when you're studying calculus or you're diving into electromagnetic theory, you're not exploring subjects that the spirit of God knows nothing about. He's omnipotent. He knows more about electromagnetics than you do, and more than your professor does, and more than everybody who's written on it together combined knows about electromagnetic whatever. So you're reading and studying and learning in any area of your life. You're humbly depending on the Spirit of Christ in you to discern what's right and wrong, wise and foolish. And all of this constantly focused on the mission of Christ in all things. So the author of Hebrews is urging early Jewish Christians not to be carried away by a prevailing Jewish culture that denied the glory of Christ. So he says, the second passage here in verse 8, Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And he follows, calls them to follow Christ into dangerous, difficult places for the glory of Christ. Here's the deal. I know, and I mentioned school a couple of times. God has put many of you in difficult settings on university campuses, in public schools for that matter, maybe even some private schools who claim to be Christian but are far from the truth of Christ, or in jobs, workplaces where there is much knowledge that is set up against the knowledge of God in Christ. You are in a mission field. So love God with all your mind. Continually saving the person, person of Christ, humbly depending on the spirit of Christ, constantly focusing on the mission of Christ, the proclamation of his truth in that place for his glory. We love God with all our minds as we daily sharpen our minds with the truth he's given us in his word and then in the world. Love God with all your mind and then love God with all your strength. Take care of your body daily as the temple of God's spirit. Your body. So now we're talking strength, your body. One of my favorite books to read with my one-year-old is a book about different body parts. What's his nose, ears, eyes, all that stuff. You ever wonder why we have all these ears, eyes, nose, whatever we've got. I mean, why do we have these things? The prevailing philosophy of our day is that all these things are just products of our DNA. These are the bodies we have. Each of us has a body that belongs to us. We're free to do with it, with it whatever we want to do with it. So many of the hot button issues in our culture today revolve around this kind of philosophy. What is marriage, homosexuality, abortion, prostitution, drugs, alcohol, free speech, pornography? The prevailing philosophy is that everybody has the right to figure out what's best for their body and to use it however they want, however they deem most desirable. So the question I want to ask is, what if that's just not true? What if our bodies are not simply products of our DNA? And deeper, what if our bodies are not ours to do with whatever we want? What if they don't even belong to us? This is exactly what the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
Now, this is one of those areas where we're tempted to fragment our faith, and we think, well, Christianity is about my spiritual life, but it doesn't have anything to do with my physical life. And in that sense, we are just dead wrong. Your life in Christ has everything to do with your body. What you eat, what you wear, how you exercise, everything you do with your body matters to God. It's informed by Christ's presence in your life. He died on a cross to make your body a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. So follow this line of thought in 1 Corinthians 6. One, your body's been created by God. It's created by God, which we've already talked about. But get into 1 Corinthians 6, 13, 14, you realize your body is invaluable to God. The body is meant for sexual immorality. It's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And listen to this, the Lord for the body. So your body is for God, and God is for your body. God is very interested in your physical life. Your body is precious to him. He put, God puts a premium on how you use your body. It's invaluable to him, so much so that he has made an eternal investment in it. Verse 14 says he'll raise it up with Christ one day. A reality, reality that's also reiterated in 1 Corinthians 15. Just as God raised Jesus from body from the dead, he's going to raise your body from the dead. So heaven's not going to be a place where spirits are just floating around on clouds, where bodies are walking around on a new heaven and a new earth. Your body has been created by God. Second, your body's been purchased by Christ. We've already talked about this. Christ has united you with himself. Jesus took on a new body like us, body of a baby boy. And in so doing, he's shown us that body's a good thing, designed by God, for God. Then on the cross, he gave his body for us, to purchase us, to unite us with himself. He's united us with himself, and in so doing, he set us free to enjoy God's great purpose for our bodies and exalt God's great glory in our bodies. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And God enables us to glorify him with our bodies by filling our bodies with his spirit. Your body has been filled by the spirit. Your body, my body, a temple of the Holy Spirit. You think about this. The temple in the Old Testament was the place where God's presence dwelled among his people. The place where God's holiness drew the nations to himself. So then our bodies, huh, we possess the presence of God in our bodies. Just like the temple in Jerusalem housed the presence of the living God, your body houses the presence of the living God. The Spirit of God dwells in your body. And so we display his holiness through our bodies. See this, Christian, God has created your body with his hands, purchased your body through his son, filled your body with his spirit, all for the display of his glory in the world. So then, practically, think about it. Honor God, then, with what you wear on your body. First Timothy 2, I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting their holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Adorn yourself with modest dress. That's a biblical command. It's an invitation to enjoy God's grace, exalt God's glory. Do not draw attention to physical beauty. Don't dress in a way that draws attention to you. The word there for modesty in 1 Timothy 2 has sexual overtones. That's why I put Romans 14 there where Scripture warns us again against putting stumbling blocks in the way of others, particularly a brother here. Sisters in Christ, let me urge you, particularly as we approach spring and summer, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So don't wear in the world what you should only wear in your bedroom. Skin-tight clothes, low neckline, short dresses, short skirts, short shorts. Don't glorify God. They glorify the flesh, your flesh, and they appeal to brothers who are pulled away from God by your immodesty. Don't dress to draw attention to yourself. When you decide what you're going to wear, what is the question you're asking? Are you asking what's going to make me look the best or what's going to make me look most attractive? You're asking what can I wear that can best demonstrate a humble heart that is devoted to the glory of my God? 
That changes what you wear. God says, don't draw modest dress. Don't draw attention to yourself. It's along those lines. Do not draw attention to worldly wealth. Part of the point of the, the exhortation against gold and pearls and jewelry there in 1 Timothy 2 is because some of these ornate things were highlighting the distinction between the poor and the rich in the early church. And women were using their dress to assert their status. So, oh, that's of the world. It's of the world, sister. Don't adorn yourself with dress that draws attention to you. Remember the one you're competing with attention for? God. You want your life in every way to draw attention to God. That's the whole point. Adore God through a Christ-like demeanor. Paul's not saying don't adorn yourself with anything. Paul's saying adorn yourself with godliness. When you look in the mirror, look for good works. That's what matters. The fruit of faith in Christ. Adorn yourself with that. Adore God with that. Charm is deceitful. Beauty vain. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So let your light shine before them. They may see your good works and give glory to your fathers in heaven. Don't let your adorning be external. This is the word of God. Word of God, 1 Peter 3. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Oh, sisters in Christ and, and brothers in Christ, wear on your body that which brings glory to your God. And honor God with what you eat. So God created our bodies to eat, right? He didn't have to, but he did. And God cares about what we eat. The very first sin in the world revolves around disobedience regarding food. This is important. It's reflected all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. All these scriptures that I put in there. And in all of it, God, over and over again, condemns excessive eating. This is sin that we do not talk about much in the church today, but we must. Do not, be not among drunkards or among gluttons, eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you. Let you have your fill of it, uh, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, who brought down the wrath of God. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Philippians 3. Many of you have, I've often told you, and now I even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory and their shame, which, mind, which minds, with mindset on earthly things. Those are strong words. Our lack of discipline in eating in the church, in our culture, is a sign of a much greater lack of discipline in our lives as Christians. And we must filter our breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snack decisions through the lens of the gospel and what brings most glory to God. So control why you eat. So, so we eat not primarily to satisfy ourselves, but to glorify God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Control how and what you eat. The body that's a temple of the Holy Spirit that changes the way you view what you put inside of you. Now, obviously, people have different ideas of what is good and right and healthy to eat, what's not. It's not where I'm going to go off on uh, why everybody should eat paleo, or everybody should eat this, or everybody should eat that. Like, that's not the point. The point is, we've got to, to go before God and say, am I honoring you with the way I'm eating, with, with what I'm eating, and how I'm eating? Is this bringing glory to your name? How do we eat on a continual daily basis that brings the most glory to God? We cannot disconnect this from our spiritual lives as if it has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with our spiritual lives. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Bible even warns us to control who we eat around. Proverbs 23, when you sit down and eat with a ruler, observe carefully what's before you and put a knife to your throat if you're given an appetite. Do not desire his delicacies for their deceptive food. Don't be lured away by the indulgences of another table. Another's table. We even have this warning in 1 Corinthians 5 when an unrepentant sinner is removed from the church not to eat with him. So don't remove God from your daily meal decisions. Be careful what you eat, how you eat, why you eat, 
who you eat around and, and crave and all this. Crave the day when we will see the king. So there's a reason why we have a meal that we celebrate called the Lord's Supper that reminds us in the church of the fellowship we'll have around his table one day. Crave that day and crave the feast we will enjoy in his kingdom, which the Bible clearly describes in terms of food, which is good gift from God for the glory of God. Honor God with what you eat on a daily basis and honor God in how you exercise on a daily basis. John prays, I pray that all may go well with you and you may be, good in, may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. All who are in Christ must be careful not to ignore the care of your body. And confession, I have been the chief of sinners on this. It was not until a couple years ago when I, through my precious wife, became very convicted about this because my eating, sleeping, exercise patterns were either unhealthy or non-existent when it came to exercise. No sleep, no exercise, eating horribly. And that was sin in my life. I was ignoring the care of my body and I needed to repent. The, the danger is there's another side of the spectrum here where we must also be careful not to idolize the care of our body. Because Paul writes in the letter of 1 Timothy, with the church at Ephesus in mind, most scholars believe that the Ephesians spent a, a lot of time on time, money, training, athletes for festivals. It was a craze, so to speak. So Paul says about midway through that passage in 1 Timothy 4, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Do you follow that? Physical training is definitely not bad. At the same time, it's not best. This is so key. Physical training is valuable. We need to care for our bodies. We need to eat well, exercise well, but let that pale in comparison to training for godliness and prayer and fasting and the word and spirit. Train there. Train much more there. The, the healthiest body in this room is not guaranteed to make it through the end of this night. What's going to matter 10 billion years from now? So don't ignore the care of our body, but let's not idolize the care of our body either. So these issues with our bodies are issues of obedience, of sin, of are we enjoying God's grace, exalting God's glory? If we're not honoring God with what and how and why we eat and how and when we exercise, then we're dishonoring the temple the Holy Spirit has given us, and we need to re repent. Along those lines, we're still thinking about loving God daily with all our strength. Keep control of your body daily in accordance with God's will. And we'll hit this, and then we'll, we'll take a break. Uh, we must control our bodies instead of our bodies controlling us. And so two areas in particular. One, a biblical expression of physical denial, fast regularly. So Matthew 6, Jesus expects his followers to fast when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast, but when you fast. But I, I would dare to say that m many followers of Christ, even in this gathering tonight, regular fasting in your life is nowhere close to your life or maybe has never even been a part of your life. We don't talk about fasting a lot. And in Matthew 6, fasting is as, as elementary and basic as praying is and giving is. And so we, we need to have emphasis there. Putting aside food and water for a certain period of time, maybe it's a meal, maybe it's a day, maybe it's more than a day, or not necessarily food or water, uh, whatever you decide to fast from, but to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to control my body by saying more than I want this physical sustenance, there's something I want more. And so this is what fasting is. I remember the first time I ever fasted, a group of us got together in high school. We were like, we need to fast. And we went out to, um, from Metro Atlanta, went out to Stone Mountain, and we kind of spread out, and we went, got our Bibles, and we just spread out. And uh, we got there about 9 in the morning, and 
had our water bottles because uh, we were just fasting from food. We were like, oh, this is, this is awesome. We prayed and we got back together about noon. We were like, we need to pray some more. So we, and then it got to be about two o'clock and we were all getting kind of tired. So we got in the car and we were like, ah, maybe we were just supposed to, we were, our plan was to fast for the whole day, but we just said, well, you know, I mean, it's been good. Uh, and there's a, a, a Burger King on the way home. So, I mean, so, I mean, six, uh, I waited till two o'clock that day and then I'm diving into this Whopper and, and thinking, I, I think I missed the point. I think I missed the point. So, so, so you start, you start at some level and then you kind of work into it. But the whole picture of fasting, why, why do we do this? Because we're hungry for God's word in our lives. We don't live by bread alone, Jesus says, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We fast because we're hungry for God's power in the church. We need strength for our bodies, so we eat. We need strength for our souls, so we put aside food periodically, and we seek after God. We just say, okay, instead of eating lunch, I'm going to spend time in prayer and the Word. I'm wanting God's power in my life, in my family, in the church, because we're hungry for God's glory in all nations. We fast because Isaiah 62, we want His glory to be made known in all the earth. So we fast and we pray for the spread of the gospel in Turkey. When we fast regularly, we express our delight in God's glory more than we enjoy food. We enjoy God. We want God. We put aside a meal and we say, more than I, I've got a hunger for that food. I've got a hunger for you. We confess our need for God's grace. Oftentimes in Old Testament, places like Joel 1 and Joel 2, you see fasting associated with times of confession and repentance of sin. More than we need a meal, we need the mercy of God. When we fast regularly, we seek and submit to God's will. More than we want our hunger to cease, we want his kingdom to come, his will to be done in our lives. And then when we fast regularly, we anticipate the return of God's son. One of the great passages on fasting is Matthew chapter 9. Disciples come to Jesus and say, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus said, you don't fast while the bride and bridegroom are together. You fast when the bridegroom leaves and you long for his return. You fast because there's an ache. There's a longing, a hunger inside of you because Christ is not here as fully and finally as he will be one day and you want him to be. So fasting is a physical expression that more than our stomachs long to be full, our souls long to see Christ. And in this way, a lack of fasting demonstrates a lack of desire for Christ to come back. So let me, let me encourage you if you have not fasted and don't have a picture of some kind of regular fasting in your life to consider as one takeaway from our time together tonight to think through what that might look like in your life. And start small and have a Whopper after a few hours if you need to, but do just start, start to put this into practice. See, see what God does. Then, in loving God with all your strength, controlling your body, consider a biblical expression of physical discipline. And I just, I think this is, is necessary to put in here. Flee sexual immorality. My friend Kevin DeYoung writes, if we could transport Christians from almost any other century to any of today's Christian countries in the West, I believe what would surprise them most, besides our phenomenal affluence, is how at home Christians are with sexual impurity. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't upset us. It doesn't offend our consciences. In fact, unless it's really bad, sexual impurity seems normal, just a way of life and downright entertaining to us. This is huge for us. We've already seen this command in 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. 
You say, what does that mean? What is sexual immorality? And the biblical word that's used there, porneia, is a reference literally to all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. So any sexual looking, thinking, touching, acting, speaking, desiring, wanting outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Again, uh, Kevin DeYoung helps us think practically about everyday application of this command. He says the simplest way to understand porneia is to think about the things that would make your fu- you furious and heartbroken if you found out someone was doing them with your husband or your wife. If someone shook your wife's hand, you wouldn't be upset. Someone gave a casual side hug to your husband, it probably wouldn't bother you. A kiss on the cheek or even a peck on the lips in some cultures might be appropriate. But if you found out another person had sex with your wife or saw her naked or touched certain parts of her body, you would be furious. If you found another person made out with your husband or talked about sexual activities or made certain gestures, you would be heartbroken. Why? Because these are all activities that are appropriate for a married couple but are inappropriate when practiced outside of the lawful relationship of a man and a woman in marriage. Any sexual activity between those who are not married or between two men or between two women or among more than two persons or between family members or between between those married to other people, any sexual activity in these contexts is sin and can be included in the prohibitions against porneia. Now, needless to say, the Bible is going completely against the grain at this point in our culture, in our country, and even in the church in so many ways in our day, but we must hear it and we must heed this. This is everyday application with an eternal exhortation. Hear the words of Christ, Matthew 5. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman in lustful intent has already committed adultery within his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Hear the words of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6. Do not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Unrepentant sexual sin leads to hell. It's not saying if you've ever committed any sexual immorality of any sort, then you're going to hell. That's why... Say unrepentant sexual sin. That's what the Bible's saying here. Those whose lives are characterized by sexual immorality, who refuse to repent of sexual immorality, they will experience eternal condemnation from God. This is extremely serious. I'm, I'm confident that this is the word from God that many people in gatherings tonight need to hear most. All across this room and in many sites, we've got 60,000 people, so... God, in his mercy, has brought some of you to this gathering right now for this moment, for you to hear these words from the word. Don't rationalize your sexual immorality. Don't reason with sexual immoralities. Run from sexual immorality. Run from it. Flee sexual immorality. This is the word of God. Love God with your body, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.